Yehovah, we pray that you would open our eyes and that we may see the wondrous things of your Torah. Amen. 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 That's truth at number two, letter U dot org. And g'day to Abraham and Elizabeth and their children, Abraham, Anna, Adah, and Chasiah, who commented saying, thank you so much for these Torah portions that you put on for free download. We are very thankful to be able to listen here in Mexico. So g'day to you guys. And wherever you may be around the world, thank you for your company. It is time for Pearls from the Torah Portion with Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon. G'day, fellas. Hey, g'day. Hey, great to be here. I want to do a shout-out to Eddie in Palm Beach, Florida, who's been listening from the beginning. Thank you for sharing it now with people on Facebook. And also a shout-out to Olo Yede, and I may be mispronouncing that name, Olo Yede in Costa Rica, Jacko Costa Rica. Thank you for listening, and keep sharing. Let me say this. I want to, you know, I I can't get over this, guys. I can't get over this. For those that are listening uh, that are in different parts of the world, I want to tell you... I just get so uh, I'm humbled that you've taken the time to do this. But this is such fulfillment to see the Torah going forth around the world. I'm just really, really um, blessed. A special shout out to everyone. Keith, let me um, let me read it to you once again because I love doing this. Everybody listening in the states, of course, Canada, Australia, Mexico, Israel, South Africa, United Kingdom, Colombia, Argentina, Philippines, Venezuela, Brazil, Costa Rica, Chile, Spain, Netherlands, Germany, Serbia, India, and New Zealand, and everywhere else. There you go. That's almost 20 countries. Are you kidding That's, me? Hey, listen, they're all around the world and they're listening to the program and it's wonderful to have everybody listening and uh, I pray that it continues to be a blessing. Now, today we are in Chukat. Have I pronounced that right? Chukat? Chukat, you got it. Beautiful. Numbers 19, verse 1 to 22, verse 1, and it begins like this. You ready? Now, Yehovah yes. spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the ordinance of the law which Yehovah has commanded, saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. Now, I know there's a, this this discussion could go on and on and on and on and on. Nehemiah, yeah. is there a red heifer in Israel? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so it says here that there's no blemish in it, and the rabbis take that to mean that it's uh, all red and it has... Uh, it doesn't have two hairs that aren't red. In other words, every single hair is red with maybe the exception of one hair. And so that's a very rare thing. But I don't think the Torah actually <laughs> is saying that it has to be 100% red. You know, if it has a white spot here and there, I don't think that's the issue. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so so uh, a red heifer, that, that's probably a pretty common thing. There are entire species of, of, of cows that are red. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be sure. lots of red. Well, you know, I, I want to say this. Lots of red. Heifer. I found a red. I found a red heifer, and I was going to bring it to the rabbis when I was in Israel. And, and uh, you know, I, I heard all this about the, this perfection of the red heifer. But I, if they're waiting for that, they ain't, they ain't finding that. It, it, it exists in Israel. I've, I've seen it. Like, I mean, you showed me the red heifer. You've, you've and, seen uh, the red heifer in Israel. Okay. Well, look. So the issue isn't isn't the red heifer. It's with what we read in you know later on in the section where it talks about we need a priest who is mm -hmm. who is clean. And actually, through the ritual of the red heifer, he becomes ritually unclean. He starts out ritually clean, and we don't have that. That's what's the, you know the challenge is to get someone who's a legitimate priest, who we can prove is a legitimate priest, who we who we know is ritually clean. Uh, it becomes a catch twenty two because once you ever uh, touch a dead body, even touch a grave, as we'll see, 
you become mm-hmm. ritually unclean forever until you're sprinkled with the waters of the red heifer, this solution of the red heifer. Yeah. And, and well, we don't, right. you know, if you don't have the solution of the red heifer, how do you get clean in the first place? That's so it right. creates a catch twenty two. So there are red, lots of red heifers in Israel today, but the this this um, this you know, waters of the red heifer we don't have today. That hasn't been created. And let me tell you guys this. This is what's so exciting about, this is what's so exciting. And I want to just not, I don't want to leave the farm, but I want to, I want to say something. This is what's so exciting to me when I read Torah and I hear about these things and I hear about these requirements and I hear about these regulations. And then I think about the author, the one who came up with them. And would there ever be a requirement or a regulation which could not be fulfilled? Um, and I would say no. There is no such requirement or such uh, a regulation that could not be fulfilled. And this is why I'm going to shout. What excites me is that he already knows. He already knows who that high priest, who that one who comes in the line of Aaron is. He already knows when he decides to set up his kingdom and the redemption is here that this is not going to be an issue. Well, what are we going to do now? We, we don't know what to do. Who, who's, gonna, who's it going to be? It's just like you guys. I don't even want to get into theology. I just want to talk about the practical side of our creator in heaven mm-hmm. who put these things in place, who knew then that there would be the requirement that would be met. There were, they, I mean, we read, we find out that this is exactly what happens. And he knows in the future that that requirement will be met. Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't that excite you guys? I mean, like, it's mm-hmm. like it just yeah. is amazing to it, me. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not like he's up there thinking, oh, geez, I can't find a red heifer. And no, what am I going to have? <laughs> it's all what over. Am I it's, do? Done. I mean, it's finished. You know, there's no, I had a great plan, me? but it's over now. Actually, yeah. you know what? His will shall be done. This is not some, you know, far off thing that will never be done. No, he's mm-hmm. going to do it. Amen. It's just amazing. I'm just starting off the portion a little excited. I better come down a little bit. Okay, okay. listen. I, you know, it's got me thinking too, Nehemiah. When, hmm. when did the pre, I mean, we understand that the priesthood obviously comes from, uh, Aaron and, uh, and then through, as we're going to see through, um, Eliezer, right? And, uh, when did that, Elazar. uh, Elazar. Sorry? There's two names in ancient Hebrew. El- Eliezer. Elazar. Who is the the servant of Abraham, Eliezer, and there's Elazar, yes, who is the, the son of, of uh, Aaron. Excellent, thank you for that. When did the high priesthood become corrupt? When when did the uh, the, the the waters of purification no longer count? Those are two separate questions. <laughs> okay, um, all right. So uh, they must have had the waters of purification in the second temple. Um, I guess after that, it ceased to exist. And um, we've mm-hmm. really all been in a state of ritual impurity collectively since then. Was okay. Well, my question is: Was was the second temple? Mm-hmm. Uh, did it have a, a high priesthood? Did it have a priesthood that um, that came from the line of Eleazar? Um, well, may, they may have come from the line of Eleazar, but they definitely, you know, in addition to that, you've got the line of Sadok or, or Zadok, who is the high priest mm-hmm. in in the temple at the time of Solomon. And uh, what happened? is uh, we had this king of, of uh, Judea appointed by the Romans whose name was uh, Herod. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. Herod was actually the descendant of, of uh, Edomites who uh, had been forcibly converted to Judaism. And so to give himself more legitimacy, he married into the family of, of, a, of, of, of these respectable priests, uh, deposed mm-hmm. the, the legitimate high priest who was a direct descendant of Zadok and installed his father-in-law whose name was uh, Bothus, or in Hebrew, Baitus, and that's where we get the Bethusians. Um, and actually, in the New Testament, you'll have you have references to the the um, the uh, the Herodian priests, and those are essentially mm-hmm. you know, that that was a derogatory name for the Bethusians, 
who are these usurper priests who were installed by Herod. And so really from the time of Herod, you no longer have anything even resembling a legitimate priesthood. You so in the in oh. the uh, the Herodian oh. dynasty yeah. corrupted the priesthood. Absolutely. Is what you're saying in a nutshell. They 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 deposed oh. the line of high priests that had go, that were legitimate high priests going directly back to Zadok, and that and those legitimate priests are actually mentioned in the Book of Ezekiel. They're foretold as the sons of Zadok who remained remained uh, loyal to me when uh, mm-hmm. when you know when the rest of the people went astray. And then Herod deposed them and installed his own, uh, literally his father-in-law. And after that. Uh, almost every year there was a different high priest that was installed by the Romans or installed through other, some mm-hmm. other corrupt means. So basically, you know, throughout the entire, uh, I'd say, last hundred years or so of the temple, you had this, um, you had people who were Kohanim. They were descendants from Aaron, but they weren't descended from Zadok, from Sadok, uh, and they were, you know, they were Bethusians. They were illegitimate priests. Okay. Can I can I read a uh, and I actually mentioned this story. I want to play a card. I've mentioned this story before, and, and I actually looked it up and, and translated it. Um, it's a it's a story that takes place uh, uh, in it's actually in the first century, and it takes place when a, a a rabbi named Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is the leading rabbi at the end of the first century, um, when he's approached by a, a certain idolater, and actually it literally says a a, a worshiper of stars. Um, Somebody, and, and anyway, so uh, he, the story takes place when this idolater asks Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, what about this red heifer thing? What, what is this about? And, and, and it gives some interesting uh, perspective. So I'm going to read this story. It appears in some ancient rabbinical sources. One of them is in the Midrash Tanhuma on this section, uh, commenting on the book of Numbers, chapter 19. So it says as follows. It says, a certain idolater asks Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, these things that you do seem like a type of magic. You bring a heifer, you burn it, you grind it up, and you take its ashes. You then sprinkle two or three drops on, on one of you who is unclean from touching the dead, and you proclaim him ki- clean. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan asked, have you ever seen someone possessed by an epileptic spirit? Uh, yes, the idolater replied. And what do you do for him? The idolater answered, we bring roots and, we make, them, and, and make them smoke underneath him. We then sprinkle water on the spirit and it flees. Rabbi Yochanan said, Let your ears hear what your mouth speaks. This spirit is a spirit of uncleanness, as it is written. And then he quotes a verse from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2, which says, And also the prophets and the spirits, the spirit of uncleanness will I remove from the earth. And then Rabbi Yochanan goes on to explain, We sprinkle the waters of purification upon the spirit and it flees. When the idolater left, Rabbi Yochanan's disciples asked him, you drove him away with the reed, meaning you, really, you got rid of him. But what will you say to us? Rabbi Yochanan replied, I swear by your lives, the dead do not make unclean, and the water does not make clean. Rather, it is, it a, it is a decree of the king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, said, I have established a statute for you to decree to decree, and you are not permitted to violate my decree, as it is written, and he quotes this verse, this is the statute of the instruction. That's actually the literal translation okay. here in Numbers 19.2. Okay. And the point is, when he's talking to the idolater, he's got to explain it in the idolater's terms. You know, the idolater is yes. looking at what he's doing, and he's saying, this looks like magic. So the rabbi says, well, look, in our world today, everyone knows that there are epileptic spirits. And what do you do for an epileptic spirit? You go through some kind of ritual, and you sprinkle water, and it runs away. That's what our red heifer is. It's, it's getting rid of an epileptic spirit. The, the disciples hear this and they're shocked because they're like, well, that's not what we do for epileptic spirits. That's, you know, that, that's the thing that sounds like magic. And so mm-hmm. when, so when the, when the idolater leaves, 
Then they then Rabbi Yochan explains what the story really is, which is that look, Yehovah commanded these things, we do them. Is there anything inherently about a dead person that makes us unclean? Of course not. It's not that there's some spirit that transfers from the dead person to us, some mystical mm. force. This is what the Creator commanded, and so we follow these commandments in order to preserve His instructions, uh, to live Say according that. to His His word. Um, and it's all about him. It's not about some spirits that we're trying to drive out or anything like that. Amen. There it is. There it is. That's 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 amazing. You know, it really that that's an example of how this program uh, there is a tie. To, there's there's a tie together. I mean, that ties it all together because because we, whatever you know, like we, we'll say, well, why did why did they say this and why does he say to do this and what about that? Well, let's remember again who the author is. Let's remember, you know, that this is this is the living word that is that we're reading, and and that there is purpose. There was purpose, then there will be purpose, and in the middle there can be, you know, priests that step in that are not legit. There can be buildings, there can be denominations, there can be, you know, popes, bishops, any number of things that try to step in. But in the end, what they, they may be trying to emulate some parts of this, but this is what was instructed, and this is what is what was what he was calling. And again, when we see those verses that say. And the people did all that Yehovah commanded through Moses, mm. and He blessed them. Wow! I mean, that's I mean, that's 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 just amazing to me. Amen. I'm, I'm I'm excited again. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. Yes, sir. It is for purifying from sin. Oh, we, we, we got we got to stop there. What do you got there, Keith? At the end of verse nine, it, it is for purification from sin. What the, kidding me? Let's see here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ceremony, clean place off the camp. They shall be kept for the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for the purification from sin. Wow. All right. This is. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, now, before does, you, before... It, but it doesn't say that. I know it doesn't say. You know what I've got? You know what, where what do you, you, got? Keith, oh, you, Keith? you got an asterisk? I've got an asterisk here. Okay. Uh-oh, here comes the New King James Version. And, the, and, of course, it says at the bottom, literally, impurity. How do you go from purity to impurity? Nehemiah, what do you have? So, first of all, it's called Menida, Um And nida is, that's the word that we, we read about uh, in Leviticus 15. Um, you know, you could, I guess you could actually translate this waters of menstruation, if you really want to be literal here. Whoa. Um, and 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 the, there, there's kind of a paradox in this water. In this, you know, we talk. It's the ashes of the red heifer. We mix it with water. We mix it with all kinds of things. In verse six, one of the ingredients is uh, it's literally it's called crimson worm. It's a dye, and so the water would have actually been red, even though the you know the 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 cow is burnt, the heifer is burnt, and and you know mm-hmm. even though it was red, it's not red anymore. It's mm. you know ash color. But the water would have been red because of the crimson worm. Well, um, so the the, the paradox here. Is that the people who are sprinkled with the water of the red heifer, or or touch it even during the preparation of it, they become ritually unclean. So at the right. same time, it makes clean, but also makes unclean. So it's a paradox, and and this is an example where something is so holy that it actually uh, uh, conveys unclean, un, uncleanness. Um, and again, I think you know the story of Rabbi Yochanan it, it says it all. This is this is what Yehovah said, you know. <laughs> Mm. Like there's nothing. I don't think there's anything inherently unclean about uh, about this water. It's it's a heifer. It's an animal, you know. And you did this ritual, but this these are the instructions God commanded. But it, its status is so holy that it actually conveys uncleanness before it then makes clean. And so literally, it says the waters of menstruation 
It is a chatat. Now, chatat can mean a sin offering, but in this context, uh, chatat could also mean uh, the removal of sin. When it's in what's called the PL conjugation, mm-hmm. it means uh, the removal of sin, uh, and therefore pl- cleansing. And, and I would say that's a more accurate translation here, um, because throughout the passage we have this phrase, uh, which is to sprinkle um, with mm-hmm. the water, uh, and hence purify through, through the, the water. Um, to make clean with the water. So, so basically, I would translate this: the waters of uh, uncleanness, or literally menstruation, uh, it is a purification. And just to pull up here, the Jewish Publication Society, uh, JPS has a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the cow and deposit them outside the camp in a clean pace, place to be kept for water of lustration. Water of lustration. See, they use a big word there, which, you know, who even knows what that means. Water of lustration for the Israelite community, it is cleansing. So it is cleansing is, they're essentially, that, that's a more accurate translation, I would say. How about that? <laughs> that's amazing. Hey, so, yeah. so we got in the, in the JPS, we have the waters of lustration. And I looked up lustration, and it, and it just means to purify by means of religious ritual or ceremony. So lustration mm-hmm. is just a fancy word for purification. I don't know what they accomplished by, by using the phrase waters of lustration. As opposed to waters of purification, yeah, learned a new word. Although, according to Wikipedia, the great source of knowledge, you know, people you can't mm-hmm. trust Wikipedia because literally anybody can go into Wikipedia and change it. But according to Wikipedia, lustration is the government process regulating the participation of former communists, especially informants of the communist secret police. Pretty sure wow. that's not what the Book of Numbers is talking about, though. No, probably not. <laughs> okay, <laughs> shall be whoever touches the body of anyone who has died. And does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of Yehovah. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. Now, based on what you just read, I'm cut off and you're cut off. And mm-hmm. uh, Keith is never connected, so he's, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Keith's cut off. <laughs> no, you've got the whole Isaiah 56 thing going on. But you weren't sprinkled with the waters of purification, right? I mean, is, is that not what mm. it said? That's what it says. If you become ritually unclean mm-hmm. from the dead and you don't get sprinkled with the waters of purification, you're cut off. That's that's mm-hmm. that's the way you're... Tra- now, what does your translation have, Keith? Uh, let's see here. Um, whoever touches the dead body of anyone who fails to purify himself to find the Lord's tabernacle, that person must be uh, cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's one way of reading the verse. And it's a legitimate way of reading the verse. But what it means is that the very act of not purifying yourself is a desecration of God's tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that how it sounds to you? I mean, are you with, yeah. with me, guys? Mm-hmm. Um, now, mm-hmm. I, looked in, I looked up in every Jewish commentator I could find to see what the opinions were, and they all agreed that, that that's a misreading of the verse. Um, that, that the better way to read, the more accurate way to read the verse would be anyone who touches a, a dead uh, body from the soul of a man, that's literally says, who shall die, and will not be sprinkled, um, having made unclean the tackle of Yehovah, that soul is cut off from Israel. In other words, if you don't walk into the tabernacle in that state of uncleanness, then you're not cut off. Um, mm-hmm. You see the difference between what you read sure. and what I, what I, what mm-hmm. I read? It's, it's a great actually, actually a significant <laughs> difference. Um, and, and, you know, and really in Hebrew, it's, it's a very slight uh, difference of, um, of interpretation here of how you so read let's... it. And uh, and to me, it's it's obvious that this has to be that you know it, it doesn't make sense to me that a person would be cut off uh, simply for not being able to uh, you know or, or or simply for you know it's, I mean let's say we have somebody up in the Galilee 
who is a, a day's walk from Jerusalem, maybe two days walk, depending on the, on the season. And you're telling me he's got to, you know, bury his father and then get down to Jerusalem to be sprinkled with the waters of the red heifer. Does that even make any sense? It doesn't to me. No. Um, <laughs> you know, there's an interesting story. Extend me a little bit of grace here and let me go over into your realm for a, for a minute. Can, can we can we do that? What? Wait, wait, wait. wait. No, you no, want to get back into the New you Testament? You want to go to the New Testament? I'm going to take a coffee break, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so let, let's pop over. I believe it's Acts chapter 21. And the reason I'm bringing this is, you know, mm-hmm. look, everybody knows who listens to this program. I'm not Messianic. I'm not Christian. New Testament isn't my scripture. I'm looking at this as an historical sh- source of what Jews did in the first century. And there we actually have... Mm-hmm. Can I get an amen? Amen. And there we have an example where somebody goes through a process of purification. And that's Paul of Tarsus. Mm-hmm. who was a disciple of a, a rabbi named Gamaliel, or Gamaliel. Where was this? I believe it's like verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself, say purifying himself, purifying with himself. them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So what are the days of purification? We know there are seven days. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands mm-hmm. on him, so he's going through the seven-day process of purification. He's being sprinkled on the third day, and then he's going to the temple to be sprinkled on the seventh day. And that's when you know the, the whole ruckus uh, happens uh, on the seventh day. But he's going through this exact process described in Numbers chapter uh, 19. So you asked, when did they stop doing this? And here we have an historical source telling us they were still doing this sometime around 40 uh, CE or, or AD, which is when Paul would have been here in Jerusalem. Uh, being purified through the seven-day process. Mm-hmm. Okay, so look now. Okay, let me get this well, straight. No, in my no, head, we're not, no, 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 no. Sorry, I'm not letting him off the hook. So Nehemiah, so you're telling yeah. me that Paul, um, this was, uh, you know, what? How many years after uh, after uh, the death of Yeshua? I thought Paul was no. like around forty or fifty. Am I wrong about that? Exactly. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. right. So I'm, no, it's 10, 15 years. I mean, we don't know exactly, but something like 10, 15 so 10, years. 15 years, years, and he's already had his road, his road, to, road to, Matt, to Damascus. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to have a New Testament study. He's had his, his, his experience on the road, and, and yet he and yet he went through the process of purification in the temple. Right. He did. Okay. So, but, okay, let me, let me just... It's in your book. <laughs> if the waters of purification, I mean, is, uh, it has to be applied by the high priest, right? Um, no, it doesn't say that. It doesn't? No, where does it say that? Okay, so I'm just wondering because... Maybe the initial... Um, look, every time somebody became ritually impure, they didn't take another red heifer. They might have done this once a century and mm-hmm, sure. uh, you know, just, just kept adding water. And so the, the high priest would have been involved in preparing, but every time they sprinkled it, I don't think it would have been the high priest. It would have been any priest, I think, probably. Okay, but the high priest would have been involved in preparing it, right? Is that what you said? Uh, um, well, look, it says Elazar the priest. And so at it this does. time, he is actually the deputy high priest. He's not the high priest. Okay. So because like, Aaron dies later in the chapter, if we ever get to that's that, that's true. Or later in the okay. Book. So it doesn't. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be prepared by the high priest. My point is, is that if if as we established before, the high priesthood was corrupt, mm-hmm. just raises some questions. That's all. But it's not necessarily it doesn't have to be the case. Well, even okay. if the high priest is corrupt, it doesn't mean that the, all the rituals he's doing are invalid. It just means he's a bad person. And there's actually a story that I was taught. And I don't know if this is historical or not, but it's certainly taught in legend that mm-hmm. in the last uh, 80 years or so of, of the of the temple, that every single year when the priest would go in on Yom Kippur uh, uh, into the Holy of Holies, that he would die. 
And they actually mm. got to the point where, I mean, you know, they had a problem. No one else can go in. So if he dies, what do you do? So they, they started tying a rope to him and he would leave the rope outside the Holy of Holies and, you know, it would be tied to him. And, it, and every single year for 80 years or so, he would die and they would pull his dead body out. They'd drag him out. They would drag Man. him out. Now, I don't know if that really happened. That might be a little bit of uh, what we call Eastern hyperbole, <laughs> Middle Eastern hyperbole exaggeration. But, but uh, you know, it may have been roughly something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I know, Jim, cr- this. I'm really, really, really stretching on this, and Nehemiah was gone to the New Testament. I simply want to ask him a question. So, Nehemiah, uh, what's the application of this for you? So um, you've you've been in the midst of a, a, a dead body. Uh, is there some part of the world where you'd say you wouldn't go because of your uh, state of uncleanness? Well, so uh, it's Yehovah says that He places His name forever, say forever, forever. on the forever. on the on the place of the temple. There's no temple mm-hmm. today, but that place mm-hmm. is still holy. And I've lived in Jerusalem for 19 years, mm-hmm. and I've never been on the spot of the temple. And that's because I'm ritually unclean. If I would go mm-hmm. to that spot. I would then be fulfilling in a bad way <laughs> um, that verse that we read, verse thirteen. I would be it. I would be uh, desecrating, making unclean the tabernacle of Jehovah, and my soul would be cut off from Israel. So I've never been to the holy of the spot of the, of the temple itself. I've been in the Temple Mount, but I've never been up beyond what's what's called the Sorag, which was the um, area that delineated with, on, with, on the Temple Mount itself. There was a, a sub area mm-hmm. that was the actual sanctified area that only somebody who was ritually clean could go. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I've never, I've never been past that point where only a ritually clean, clean person would be allowed to go. And um, essentially, that was the original Temple of Zerubbabel. And then what, Arid, what, what Herod added on that was never really considered sanctified. And anybody could go into that area. So mm-hmm. I've been into that area, you know, because like you said, I've been in the presence of a dead body. I've touched a dead body, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've never been up there in 19 years. And, okay. uh, I hope, and so- I hope I'll be able to go soon when the Messiah comes and reestablishes Amen. the ritual of the red heifer. Mm. So, so, so then you're saying there's a, there's a spot up there where just you wouldn't, you physically wouldn't go. Is okay. that why when I said to you, uh, Nehemiah, I need you to come up with me? Because I'm going to go up and proclaim the name uh, from the Temple Mount. You said, hey, good luck. <laughs> I wish you success. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know that I actually did go up there and um, with, with Muslims and uh, and stood at the Temple Mount and made a proclamation. As Nehemiah said, his name that's been there and he's placed his name there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly the, the exact uh, dimensions of, of where I was, but uh, I did do that. And um, that's been something that I was, was uh, very, very what I call... Um, motivated about it by especially as i look at the temple mount now and see what's going on up there and if you've ever been up in that area it, it really does break your heart because you've got this massive area and you got you got herod doing what he he does but you know that you know you can look across and see where the the you know the dome of the rock is and you know that under there there's the spot where there's supposedly the rock and, and actually some 20 some years ago in 1980s i actually saw that that rock um but now you know the, there's a mosque there, and you don't get a chance to go in uh, because the you know it's being it's under the control of Islam right now, mm-hmm. and it's and it's a it's a it's a it's a heartbreaking uh, experience to be there and to know that th- this is not what it was intended to be, and yet it's also a very exhilarating uh, place to be because you know that this will be the spot where he will will uh, restore mm-hmm. um, all of that. So it really is it's pretty amazing. That's going to be a that's going to be uh, somehow. I'm going to put that up. I don't know when, but somehow I'm going to put that little clip up. In fact, don't know. I think you'll be the first person that I talk to about I'm, that when I I'm put that clip up from the Temple Mount. I'm, I'm because, eagerly uh, awaiting. 
it, it, it was really quite uh, quite the experience. Can, can I anyway. share something about my experience up on the Temple Mount? And, and again, well, hang, on, hang on, hang on. Before you do, before you do, uh, just yeah. just remind everybody that there is a video that Keith is putting together. There's a DVD coming out that uh, that we're eagerly awaiting, and it may Keith is it possible it might even well, be. I have no idea. All I know is that when it does, more than likely, I'm going to get in big trouble with uh, the Methodists. This could be it, ladies and gentlemen. And this, this, this could be no, it. No, seriously, this, 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 this project on time will probably be the end of my my Methodist run. They're just not going to like it. I mean, because of some of the things that I I did, and a lot of it was because of Nehemiah. He, he just he he won't he won't take responsibility. He's a bad for influence it. on you, really. He's isn't a he? terrible influence. <laughs> on me, I'm telling you, you mean you know, I was getting doing you to fine until I met him. Yeah. Anyway, so so look, uh, I went up there and I didn't go into the into the place that was the sanctified area. I stayed outside, but what I did see there made it was really one of the saddest things I've ever seen. One of the the most moving experiences, in, in a good way and a bad way. Um, hmm. You know, I saw there a literal fulfillment of a prophecy that appears in the book of Jeremiah, chapter twenty six, verse eighteen, and it says as follows: um, it's actually a prophecy uh, that he's quoting from. Micah, uh, from, from Micah, uh, Micha Hamoshti. It says, uh, let's see. Thus says Yehovah of hosts, Zion shall be, uh, plowed as a, a, a field, and Jerusalem will be heaps of stones, and the Temple Mount shall be, the uh, uh, translate this, a, a high place of a forest, uh, a forest hilltop. And I went up there, and this is literally true today. It's, it's, uh, there's literally I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making this up. There's literally heaps of rubble and stone on the Temple Mount. The Muslims mm-hmm. say that this is their holy place. That this is the third holiest place in Islam. But if you actually go up there, a large part of the Temple Mount today is a garbage dump. That's what the Muslims mm-hmm. have done to it. They've turned it into a garbage dump, and that's a fulfillment of this prophecy. It talks about the heaps of stones. I went up there and I saw the heaps of stones. I actually have pictures of them that I took on my iPhone, and, and, and I was shocked. You know, I, I didn't expect that, to be honest with you, because, you know, I know that the, the Muslims, you know, they talk day and night about how this is their holy place, and they'll die to mm. defend it, and I go up there, and it's a garbage dump. A significant portion of it is, is literally a garbage dump with heaps mm. of stones and, and rubble and, and, and garbage up, up on the holiest, and, you know, they say it's their third holiest place. This is the holiest place in the biblical mindset, in the, in the biblical Amen. world. This isn't number three. This is number one. It's the place Jehovah put his name forever, and they've literally, in the fulfillment of this prophecy, turned it into a garbage dump and turned it into a forest. There's trees growing there, um, and this and this people who are, I mean, there were kids up there playing soccer, um, and, you know, I, I, I was... It was, there was no respect whatsoever for this place, mm-hmm. which uh, the creator of the universe has established as the holiest spot on planet Earth. Amen. And that's Amen. why, Jono, what we're going to do is we're going to come and talk to you about this because I took video of it up there so people can see it for themselves. So what I've got here, Keith, it says uh, in my New King James, it says, Thus says Yehovah, host, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruin, and the mountains and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And, mm. uh, and that's what you're saying. So we're looking forward to that, uh, that, yeah, that video. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Shall we kick off with uh, chapter 20? Yes. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's do that. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people okay. stayed in Kadesh. Uh, and Miriam, Miriam died there and was buried there. I think it's really interesting that, um, and this, this happens a lot in the Torah, 
And I, again, you know how you have a different things that you're focusing on. For mm-hmm. me, it's always the three T's, time, Torah, tetragrammaton, God's mm-hmm. name, God's clock, you know, and uh, God's word, his, his word. And so depending on which thing I'm focusing on, you know, I'll be reading through the Torah. Like I'll do my reading when I'm thinking about, you know, Torah and I'll see the words Torah and, and I'm reading through and talking about time and about his name. But this is just interesting to me that here we have, um, and I don't know exactly, I guess we, we've dealt this, with this issue of chronology mm. back and forth, but in, in Numbers 20 it says in the first month. So they're still counting time from when it was that they left Egypt and it was the first month and what year this is. And it's the first, in other words, whenever I see those words and in the first month, you know, there wasn't any confusion there about what time it was. They look up, they saw, they kept time. Well, but we don't and, know what and, year it was. And you know, it it's was, just kind of, when, we don't, we don't know what year it was. We don't know what year it was. Um, and that's the point, is that in this situation, they're saying, okay, but we know that it was the first month. Amen. So that, to me, it's just an example where it, whatever year it was, they're still counting based on mm. looking and saying, here's when the month is. The, the mm. fact that that's even in the verse, sort of kind of, uh, you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> there it is. And uh, and so, unfortunately, Miriam uh, is Moses's uh, Aaron's sister and uh, she died there and was buried there actually I want to come back to that in a minute but it goes on to say now here here is the beginning of a of an incredible story keith mm-hmm. oh my goodness here is an amazing story now there was no water for the congregation so they gathered together against moses and aaron and the people contended they listen they gathered together against moses and aaron yet again after everything that we've been reading my goodness and the people contended with moses and spoke saying if only we had died when our brethren had died before Jehovah, why have you brought up the assembly of Jehovah into this wilderness and that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? <laughs> it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and they fell on their faces and once again, it, this you know, it says, and the glory of Jehovah appeared to them. And then Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, "Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock, speak to the rock, Keith, before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus, you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals." So Moses took the rod from before Yehovah as he was commanded. And this is this is what happens. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly and the congregation uh, for the congregation and their animals, and they, they all drank. Now, first of all, Keith, what, what, what do you make of this story? Well, I want to say this. I want to start just at this 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 first section, and and this is again before we get to real real important. Well, I think it's all important, but just uh, if you've ever been in the desert uh, without water, um, I've had an experience with Nehemia that I like to. You tell wanted my water. That, uh, that really, you know, it was really really amazing. We we decided that we wanted to not only teach the prayer. Uh, we want to go to the places where this prayer uh, made sense, this prayer that uh, Yeshua taught Jesus, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be lead us not into temptation, you know, in the English. So Nehemiah's bright idea was, look, we've got to go to the actual spot. We've got to go to the place where he spent 40 days and 40 nights. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, fine, we'll do that, Jonah. We'll go, the, we'll go to that spot. And Nehemiah says, um, now you've got to bring plenty of water. And I'm like, right, you know, I'll take one. And he's got like three. And I'm talking about liters of water. I mean, he's got like three liters of water. Well, we were in the desert for been the equivalent of about three hours, 
My water was gone. After about four hours, I started looking at him, and after five, I started figuring out how I was going to steal it from him. <laughs> and the reason, the reason, are you going to strike him with a stick no, and steal no, his I'm water? Hurt, no, I'm you kidding me? When he's not looking, bury I'll, me in the sand. I'll ask, <laughs> no, I'm going to. I was going to ask for forgiveness after the fact. And my reason is, and I wanted to bring this up, was during that situation, I was I was thirsty, and already they say that in, if you're in the desert. And you start feeling thirst, that means you're already, be, you're already past the fact that there's some dehydration mm-hmm. that's taking place. So I'm imagining that for me. Mm. And I want to say Nehemia was extremely nice. We, uh, this is where we had our covenant of salt. We drank from the same water and we've been friends ever since. Yeah. But let me say, let me, let me just say this, that, that, um, I experienced that in just a half a day. Mm-hmm. So imagine that this is going on for a full day or two days. Who knows? Well, there's a lot of things you can go without. You can go without food for a while. But when you start dealing with the issue of water, um, it, there, there really are effects that can start. So these people may not just be grumbling because they're impatient Israelites. These are people that are in the desert that don't have water. I mean, and look, I'm serious. I mean, it, it could have gotten out there in the desert with myself. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the project would have ended right then, but he was willing to share. Well, in this situation, there was no water to share. Mm-hmm. So I just want to contextually bring that up before we get into this, that this is not just a matter of convenience. Hey, we want meat to eat. No, this is a matter of life and death. Yeah, These people are thirsty. Bit, they get a little bit desperate, right? I mean, we, yeah, uh, yeah. We're just, I mean, in I just Australia wanna... here, we've just come out of drought, about 10 exactly. years of drought. But I can tell you there was a, there was a few times when we, when, when our house ran out of water because we were on tank water. And, uh, and you, and you start to sort of think about that. I mean, it wasn't that much of a dilemma. There were certain things we could do. But, um, when the, when the ground is that parched and you look out at the poor sheep in the, in the, yeah, I was saying the yeah. desert, just in the field, but there's, it's dry and it's dusty, dust storms and all sorts of things. And um, so then, after you have this a matter of being thirsty, you know, there's this this issue, and then the, and I find this is, an, is is a really an interesting twist here. So so uh, Yehovah says to Moses and Aaron, he says, now just now here's what you're going to do. He doesn't. There's not even a dialogue. It's not them. You know, it's not them um, begging. You know, they fell face down. He heard their prayer. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't say those darn Israelites. They're, they're complaining about water. Ah, ah, ah. No, he just says, okay fine you've asked here's what i want you to do mm-hmm. take the staff now this is what the, this is this is a little small thing take the staff what he could have said to moses and aaron hey moses and aaron just go out and speak to the rock but what he does is he says take the staff but don't use the staff simply speak to the rock now be moses moses is you know he's he's thinking okay oh, i get to do my thing mm. i'm about to raise my staff and i'm going to do my thing and they're going to know that yehovah is holy but this little twist changes the game for moses because he tells him take the staff but speak to the rock. You know, sometimes, <laughs> let me be a Methodist, sometimes, you know, you kind of get, get, this is what, this is how Yehovah's dealt with me in the past. This is how he's dealing with me in the future. You know, no. In that situation, it was very specific. Take the staff, but speak to the rock. Mm-hmm. So what does Moses do? And I know we can, we're, I'm going to let Nehem talk here in a minute. It, it, what does he do? He takes the staff, and then he puts on a show. He does. In other words, yeah, I mean, just from reading it, like Moses is like, okay, doggone it, you know, I've had enough too. And then instead of speaking to the rock, and this goes back to the whole thing about Leviticus and the different parts and all the different instructions. Because it's not like Moses is exempt from the specific statutes and regulations that, 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 that are required. And that to me, that to me is, this is not favorism. That to me is, is a huge thing that takes place. It's a small thing in terms of take the staff but speak, but it's a big thing because he speaks, he has dialogue with the creator of the universe and, and he tells him specifically, imagine Jono or Nehemiah. He call, he meets in the middle of the night, uh, Nehemiah, this is what I want you to do. And he gives it to you clear, and the next day, you don't do it. Mm. That's what we're talking about here. This is not fusion. This was very clear. And the, and the, and how do we know that? Because he says this. 
But Yahovah said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, That's you will not bring this community. That, that, that uh, to me, you guys, I'm telling you. No, I've got something, I've got something different in mind, Keith, that says, because uh, oh. it goes on to say, then Yahovah spoke in this verse 12, spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, oh, we're going to have to ask Nehemiah. We're going to have to ask him to read it. What's, what's your take on this story, my friend? And Yehovah spoke to, or Yehovah said to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't uh, believe me to sanctify me before the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, uh, you shall not bring this congregation to the land which I give to them. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, think, I think one of the things about this story is um, I'm, I'm confused by this story. And, and so I can understand how Moses was confused too. And I think the reason he's confused and, and why I'm confused is there's two places, two different stories that are almost identical and there's one subtle difference between them. And even the names are almost identical. So we've got the first story appears in Exodus 17, uh, at the beginning of the chapter there. And that takes place at, uh, at a place called Rifidim. Mm -hmm. And Rifidim then gets renamed when the people uh, test God and complain. It's then called Masa'u Meriva, which means test and strife. And in, in the story of Rifidim, or Masa'u Meriva, there Moses, God commanded Moses to hit the rock. Mm -hmm. And that's distinct from what's happening here. Here, God tells Moses to talk to the rock, and this is, uh, after that, it's called Me Miriva. So we had Masa Umiriva and Me Miriva, and, um, and, and, you know, those sound very, very similar. And then Masa Umiriva, to complicate matters, is sometimes just called Masa, um, without the Miriva part. Um, and then some verses mention both of these incidents. So in the first incident, he's told to, to hit the rock. In the second incident, he's told to talk to the rock, and he hits it because he's like, well, wait a minute. I did this before. I know how this works. Mm -hmm. And um, and then and then that becomes uh, the test that he has failed and that Yehovah then says, because you didn't, you didn't um, sanctify me before Israel, therefore you're not going to go into the land. And, um, and can we maybe really quickly read Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 8? Can you read that, mm -hmm. Keith? Or Jonah? Go ahead, Jonah. Yeah, because that mentions says, both Masa and Merivah. And of Levi he said, Let your Thuman and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Masa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Merivah. Now, the reason this is confusing is the full name of Masa is Masa U Merivah. Uh, U means and. Masa and Merivah. And then we also <laughs> have the place which is Me Merivah, the waters of Merivah. And then this verse, Deuteronomy 33, 8, refers to Masa and the waters of Merivah. And those are the two different places. So, so it's extremely confusing. And that's all, they're also both mentioned in Psalm 95, verse 8. There it also, uh, rehashes and mentions both of these, um, you know, most, both of these incidents. And, um, you know, if, if, if you didn't know better, you'd say, well, wait a minute. These, this is the same story just being told a little bit differently. And I think that's exactly what confused Moses. He's like, I've been to this rodeo before. I, I know God last time told me to hit the rock. I, I'm just going to hit it. I'm not going to talk not, to the rock. No, no, that's I've, I've never had a, a disagreement. I've never had a yeah, disagreement I, on Torah pearls. I've never had a disagreement on Torah pearls, but this is my uh, first one. I'm going to have a complete and other disagreement with my friend Nehemiah Gordon because I don't think that Moses was confused at all. I think that Moses mm -hmm. knows the language. I think that Moses is the one that put, that penned it. I think that Moses knows that when Exodus seventeen seven, and he was dealing with the place Masah, he knew that that was from the word 
What is the word Nehemia? Nasa. He knew that was a test, mm-hmm. and when that test when that test came, he passed that test. And I don't think he was confused at all. Exodus seventeen seven. Or I don't think he was confused at all about the two different places. And I think that's why more than anything that Yehovah held him accountable. I don't think this was a matter of ignorance or confusion. Oh, I don't think I it was ignorance Moses, or confusion. I I well, let me finish. I'm in the middle yeah. of an argument with you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, 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 so I think that Moses absolutely knew that in Exodus 17 it was Masah from the word Nisa, test. That's why when we go to Abraham, it says he tested him. Yeshua himself, when he was tested, I think that, that, that Moses knew and he passed that test with flowers. When you're the one, and that's why I brought the example of being met and my heart's beating on this, and you're meeting in the middle of the night and you get that word from Yehovah and it's clear, mm-hmm. and he tells you clearly, and you and I don't have to, you know, like Nehemiah and I often do this, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be talking about something really important, and I've always appreciated this about Nehemiah. He'll say, we need to pray about that, okay? And so then in the period of time of discernment, you pray about it. But let's go back to what we taught the people here. Moses was not like others. He didn't need to pray about it. He had dialogue with Yehovah. Mm-hmm. It was as clear as me talking to Jono and Jono talking to us and the people around the world listening. He had the instruction as clear as the priests get the instruction when it was clear from Yehovah. And I don't think this was a matter of confusion. I think this was a matter of disobedience. When he went to the rock, Yehovah told him, Moses, speak to the rock. He knew it was a different rock. It was different. It was a different place. And he didn't speak to the rock. He showed it in front of the people. And he stood up and said, how long will you people ask for us to do this? And this is what's so amazing about the Bible. It tells us what he said. They like, don't have to guess. He got up and he hit it not one time, because if he was confused, he should have hit it one time. He hit it twice, once for heaven and earth, to let Yehovah know, look, I'll take it from here. I'm going to showboat in front of these people. And Yehovah said, hey, Moses, come over here for a second. If I'm going to kill people with a plague, if I'm going to keep priests, if, if the sons of Aaron are going to die for not treating me holy, mm. You're going to be held accountable. And I, I, I really think this was an example where when we read this story, we're supposed to say Moses is not exempt. And if anything, it shows the justice of Yehovah and his righteousness, and he will be treated holy. Mm-hmm. And this is my big argument. I don't think Moses was confused, and that's why he was held be- accountable. Because there is, and there is a higher was, level yeah. of accountability, right? Yeah. There's a much yeah, higher right. level of accountability for Aaron and for Moses. And it's interesting. Moses to him face to face. Because, I mean, should he have said, Nehemiah, I mean, seriously, should he have said, here now, O house of Israel, Yehovah will bring water out of the rock. But, but instead we have, must we bring must we? water out of this he rock? It and it's interesting that it, that, it, that it does make the point that it, it doesn't just say so, Moses hit so the rock. Why, but it makes so the why didn't he twice. talk to the rock? What, what, what I, I guess that what I'm trying to do is psychoanalyze Moses sure. um, and, and understand what his reason was. Because you're sure. saying he knew, he knew, he knew he was supposed to talk to it and he hit it. So what was the reason that he did that? And, 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 I, and I, I still maintain that he had the previous experience where hitting it worked. And let's sure. be honest, he's not a man of words. So he's holding that staff. He's performed the miracles with the staff. He split the sea. He turned the sea into That's blood. Exactly why and now he's thinking, I got to talk to it? Heck no. Boom, boom. And the water comes out. And he thinks, oh, man, yeah. thank God I didn't have to speak. And but he does speak. He says, "Here now, you rebels, must we bring water out of the rock, uh, out of this rock for he's you?" Speaking as clear as day here, and I'm I'm just saying this. And listen, we, this is a matter of like you say, you can try to analyze it. My point is, why did he hold him accountable? So he says, way, and if he wouldn't have used these use so these words, it says yeah. this. He says this. He says this. But Yehovah said unto Moses, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy, this wasn't a matter of. Because, he doesn't say because you be, be, because you waved your hand 
It's because Yahovah is holy. Okay. He will so, be treated as holy, and it's a matter of if it's a matter of trust. That if he says to him, "This is what you do," and he doesn't do it, look, the story would have been over in in the uh, Red Sea if he wouldn't have, of, of, or when he was meeting with Pharaoh. Moses yeah. knew exactly what Yehovah instructed no, him to do. No, he met with Pharaoh. Aaron was the one speaking on his behalf. Oh, but he and, did. And, but I'm saying, what I'm, and, and what here I'm when he speaks, he's he's actually this is what you might call an excited utterance. He's upset. He's like he's yelling he's at the ticked people. Off. He's ticked off. And one of the things yeah. that they, they that you find with people who stutter is that actually when they're excited, when they're saying something in a in a moment of anger or rage or or excitement, they actually don't stutter, and no one knows why. But you know, but then when it comes time, okay, well, God told me I need to speak to this. Now there's dead silence across the mm-hmm. you know, there's three million people. They're in dead silence. Everyone's looking to him, and now it's time to speak. And there's no excitement. There's trepidation, and he's like, oh, heck, God, no way. I'm just going to take the take the take the staff, and I'm going to hit it. Now that's my mm-hmm. psychoanalyzing him. I could be wrong. I'm so can I ask? Nehemiah, can I ask you then? Based on what we know about Moses, it makes a lot of sense. I understand what? Moses's heart. You know, when you're standing in front of a group, a group of people, and you know the groups of people I'm standing in front of are usually several hundred, not three million. And when there's that dead silence when you walk out there, that can be intimidating. And sure. you know, if you're a man who stutters, that I can't even imagine how intimidating that is. So verse twelve, where it says, "Because now Keith has got because you did not trust me, and I've got because you." Did not believe me, and that's the way you translated. Well, in what way no, did did Moses not believe Yehovah here? Okay, so so in Hebrew, <laughs> in Hebrew, to believe and to trust is essentially uh, pretty much the same thing, because okay. the word emunah in Hebrew, which you could translate literally as belief, isn't just something um, uh, that you know. It, it, we, in the Western world, uh, we come from the Greek culture, or you guys come from the Greek culture, and the Greek culture. <laughs> Uh, it's it's the it's the culture of thought. You know, they invented philosophy, which is the love of knowledge, of thoughts, of ideas. And Hebrew is an action-oriented language. That's mm-hmm. the real big difference between Hebrew and Greek thought. You know, they're thought-oriented, we're action-oriented. And so belief isn't about just thoughts. In Hebrew, belief is about action. So he may have said, oh, yeah, I believe God, but his actions showed differently. His actions mm-hmm. showed a lack and of this, belief. And, and this is what I would say, and, this is, and I'm going to stay with the scripture here. But this is what I would say regarding regarding this whole thing and why this was so important. And this was what I was waiting to say. I believe that one of the reasons that Yehovah told him to take the staff, but yet he told him to speak to the rock, is that even Moses had become a little bit dependent on his staff. Or maybe even Moses started saying, yes, I've got the magic stick. Here it does. And Yehovah says, bring your staff, but don't use it. Speak sure. to the perhaps, rock. Perhaps. I mean, I'm just about saying, that and, my point, and my point is, is it happens in history. Uh-huh. You know what? Here's the, here's the golden, here's the, here's the snake that's on, you know, the, the bronze snake yeah, we look to the that. snake well, and next thing ahead. you know what do we find out some years later no no my point is yeah. that they bringing that thing that was was used to show god's glory ends up being its glory itself and this happens mm-hmm. in christianity and everywhere else yeah. only thing i'm saying is i think it's phenomenal that he said bring the staff but don't use it and i think the fact that moses did use the staff was an example of not trusting Yehovah, and the fact that he didn't do what he told him to do is why there's accountability and and I don't think yep. he was confused at all. I think he was showboating. That's compelling. But that's my opinion. That's compelling. Let's move on. Moving on. So Edom. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but is not Edom the descendants of Esau? Is that right? That's correct. Edom is the descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they wouldn't let uh, the Israelites pass through. They they pleaded with them, let us. We'll stay on the king's highway. We won't do any. If we drink any water, we'll pay for it. And he insisted no. And the interesting thing is that they don't say, well, I'll tell you what, how about this? We'll just wipe you out instead. Right, there's, that, that's, there's none they, of that. 
they were commanded not to do that. That that God mm-hmm. had there given the land of Edom to the descendants of Esau, and later on in Deuteronomy we'll hear there's a specific commandment not to conquer uh, Edom, uh, Moab, and Ammon, mm-hmm. the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. The, those are mm-hmm. our cousins through uh, Esau and through Lot, and uh, we're not we're you know they've got their land. We're supposed to leave them alone. We got our land. We're supposed to liberate mm-hmm. it. And there, there it is. is. And so Israel. Uh, they turned away from, from Edom is what happened. But in verse 22, the, the children of Israel, the whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor, and Yehovah spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land and uh, of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. And there's some news you don't want to hear. Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word. Keith is what it says, because you rebelled against my word at the waters of Meribah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think one thing I was going to say about this, just can you imagine, like us right now, the three of us, we don't know when our day will come. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't, you know, Yahweh has not said, mm-hmm. at least that I know of, you know, Keith, it's two days, it's, it's, you know, you know, Keith is about to be gathered to his people, and you know. But be Aaron, can you imagine that? I mean, just, I just hearing that, like, I mean, like, That's okay, you suck. Not- yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like, okay, now listen, uh, you know, you're going to go up on a hill and you're not going to come down. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Hey, one, one so that's thing what to, happens. One thing to point out here, and this is, you know, me jumping ahead into a, a different Torah portion um, in Deuteronomy, which is that, you know, okay, so we, we've got this this story and, and it's like, you know, one thing after another. They're in Kadesh in the, in the wilderness of Tzin, and then the next thing we know, they're at, they're at Mount Hor and Aaron is dying, and uh, and, and it's very misleading because in Deuteronomy we find out that they spent years at Kadesh, and uh, mm-hmm. and and between the time they left Kadesh to when they uh, essentially reached the end of this Torah portion uh, oh. was 38 years from when they oh, from, wow. from from when they arrived at Kadesh until the end of really chapters 20 through 21 of Numbers is a span uh, 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 or already into chapter 22 verse one is a span of 38 years, and we find that out from the book of uh, Deuteronomy. But from here, it's like you know, one event after another, and and it's and it's a little bit misleading. Um, so so that's that's something important to bear in mind. Now listen, let me yes. just jump back to the beginning of this chapter. Do is there a tomb of Miriam? Uh, I'm sure somewhere there's a tomb of Miriam, but uh, there's not. We don't know where Miriam's real tomb is. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't think I don't think Jewish tradition has a, a tomb of Miriam. But I wouldn't be surprised if. You know, other traditions have a tomb of Miriam. There is a, a, a Muslim site which is identified as the tomb of Aaron. Um, I don't think anybody in the Jewish world takes that really seriously as Aaron's actual tomb. Um, but but we pretty much know which mountain, or or the mountain that he's identified as having died on, is, uh, what you know, it's called the Tanakh Hor Hahar, or Mount Hor, is identified as a mountain uh, next to Petra, which is in uh, southern... Um, Southern uh, king, the kingdom of Jordan in the south there, and that's the area that was that was historically part of Edom, and in fact Petra was the capital of Edom, the capital of the Edomites. Um, so the high priesthood, uh, yeah. the high priesthood is transferred to Eleazar, his son, mm-hmm. and uh, says Moses was gathered to his pe- uh, people. He died there, and uh, they, they stripped him of his garments um, and, and put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron died there on top. Of the mountain, then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now, when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron thirty days. Thirty days. Yeah. Thirty days. Yes. There it is. Okay. 
Okay. And now, now there's a uh, an attack, right? For the Canaanites, uh, the king of uh, Arad, Canaan, dwells in the south. Heard that Israel was coming along the along the road, and he, he fought with them. He took some of them as prisoners. How about mm-hmm. that? So Israel made a vow to Yehovah and said, "If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities." And Yehovah listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Hormah is from the word Haram. By, uh, it says here Vayacharem, and he utterly destroyed. So Hormah is utter destruction. Out of destruction. Can I read this part? I was just about to say, Keith, will you take us through the bronze serpent? Look, this is this is the Methodist section, so this is yeah. great. <laughs> so they traveled from Mount Hor along the road. What are you talking about? The route of the Red Sea uh, to go uh, around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, I have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert. There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Three mm. things. No bread, no water, and that which you've given us we don't even like. And the Lord um, uh, sent venomous snakes among them, um, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against Yehovah and against you. Pray that Yehovah will make the snakes go away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Mm-hmm. Can I get an amen? <laughs> well, that's what it says. Amen. But so, I mean, no, amen. It, it, it's, it's one of the strangest. Uh, th- I mean, the first thing that comes. About? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the second commandment, right? I mean, but but keep going. What do you mean it's strange? Here, here we have again. This is just a chapter later. When it happened, how long it happened? Here, here's a chapter chapter later, and he says, "Okay, look, I sent the snakes. Okay, I tell you what I'm going to do. Go and take this bronze snake, put it on a pole, lift it up, and then whoever looks at the snake is healed." Mm-hmm. Can I ask what might sound like a stupid question? What? Yeah. Why, why was it a bronze or actually copper? Why was it a bronze or copper snake? Why was it, a, you know, I don't know, an iron snake or a gold a gold snake? I mean, gold is you know much more venerable than, than copper. Sure. Oh, that's a great question. I, so, I I didn't have an answer to that. So so in Hebrew, it's a play on words because the word for snake mm-hmm. is nachash, and the word for copper mm-hmm. or bronze is nachoshet, and uh, together that uh, becomes nachash nachoshet, the copper snake. Right. So, 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 so what, what, what Keith has, Keith's got uh, venomous snakes. What I have in the in the New King James is fiery serpents. Is fiery and uh, and copper is uh, in the no, Hebrew? No, no. Are they so, so so he so saraf is a type of snake, um, and that's what they're translating in yours as fiery serpent. And presumably, mm-hmm. they say that was a snake that when it bit you, you you felt a burning. Um, if you've ever been stung by a bee or, or a wasp, sure. you know what that's about. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, sure. I've never been bitten by a snake, but I have been stung by a wasp, um, mm-hmm. and that burns like oh my gosh. So, yeah. uh, uh, so that's saraf, that word in verse eight. But then in verse nine, it says, "And Moses made nachash nechoshet, a copper snake." Mm-hmm. So, snake is the broader term. Saraf is a specific type of snake. So, it's, uh-huh. so it's a play on words. And then later on, and I'm gonna let Keith bring this. Later on, it's called nechushtan, which means uh, I don't know. You could translate that as coppery snake or i mean basically it's a combination of the word copper and snake nehushtan um but it's from the word nehoshet which means copper mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so keith it, it it says this is uh, exodus 20 verse 4 you shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath underneath that uh, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them now i understand of course they're not they're not bowing down at least not yet to to the snake, <laughs> yeah, right? Well, well, the snake. right. 
I, I, th- I think this actually shows that, that the purpose there of that commandment is, is it's dealing with, um, with things that are then to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Meaning, don't make yourself an idol to worship is, I think, what, what it's saying in the second commandment. Amen. And so if you think about it, you know, like, so little children, you know, 3,000 years ago, um, is God telling the Israelites, don't make for them little toy horses and little toy, you know, mm-hmm. is that really what it means? And they actually did have toys back then, if anybody's laughing and saying they didn't. They, they did. They had made out of pottery, little, you know, uh, earthenware um, horses we, we find in, in excavations that were used as toys. And um, I, I don't think that that was a prohibition to, you know, not let your children have toys. I think the point there is don't make things that, that don't make an idol to worship. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem here, I'll let Keith talk about this, is what happened oh, afterwards. Okay. Nope. No, well, I just want to say this, though. I think that one of the things that we want to look at again, and I think what uh, Nehemiah just brought up is a great example. No, the point that uh, that uh, what he's saying here is that there's this, this this bronze snake that's been made for this person, how he wants to access that bronze snake in terms of bringing healing. He's not saying, make this bronze snake and bow down to it. In other words, I don't think this has anything personally to do with that command of mm-hmm. creating an image and then bowing down to it. I think it has to do with the instruction of Yehovah, and this is how I want you to do it, and this is how the healing is going to take place. So imagine someone saying, okay, I was bit, but I'm not going to look at the snake. Mm-hmm. Guess what? You die. Yeah. It's that clear. All right. Okay. So I have a question. Uh, wait, wait. I have a question. Well, are, are, we gonna, gonna, uh, are we not going to bring two sure kids 18, 18 four? Of course. <laughs> of course we are. Right, are we, we talking about wait, this? Wait, the question. No, no, no. No, no. You can continue. Second Kings, chapter yeah, 18, is, verse 4. Okay. On. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and called it, and now I've got Nehushtan. Nehushtan. And, and this is su- such an amazing story to me, because this is the time of King Hezekiah, and he's finally getting rid of the high places and all the, the, the illegitimate worship that's going on, and there's this relic there. It's a relic that Moses himself made by the direct command of Yehovah, and it's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a relic that if you look on it can actually bring healing. But the problem is, that the people are worshiping it. Yehovah mm-hmm. said, look upon that copper serpent and you'll be healed from snake bites. And what do they do? Mm-hmm. They start to forget what's going on. They say, oh, the, the copper serpent up on that stick is giving me healing. I'm going to worship it. And they burn mm-hmm. incense to it. Mm-hmm. And, and Hezekiah realizes it needs to be destroyed. It needs to be ground into dust, which is what it says, kitat. He, he ground it up in a mortar. He, wow. uh, he completely mm-hmm. turned it into dust. Because even though Moses made it by the direct commandment of Yehovah, it had become a stumbling block for the people, and it needed to be destroyed. Amen. Amen. And that's and that's again connected to the you brought up, uh, Jonah, regarding the command of the, the very thing that you said. Well, isn't this mm-hmm. something that uh, would be created? I mean, and it's a purpose of what it was created for. It fulfills purpose. Amen. What they did is they took that further and said, oh, this is a great thing. Let's take Sound a good thing in. and make it a great thing. Let's franchise this thing. Hey, let's make this the thing that we, uh, you know, <laughs> so there's a lot of that. Now, just, just before we move on then, Nehemiah, how many, how many years are we talking uh, between the events in Numbers and King Hezekiah? Oh, just so, some round uh, figures. I'd say roughly something like 750 years, 800 years. Sure. Okay. That's how long they had it, and, uh, and it makes you wonder how long they were... Uh, well, they, they, you know, uh, it, it had uh, reached hundreds, sort of... hundreds of years. People make 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 the, they recreated the bronze snake. It, it was an ancient thing, and it was directly tied to Moses, legitimately so. Mm. And they said, "Okay, we've got healing in this. We're going to burn incense and worship it." 
And there it is. Mm-hmm. Picking up the pace a little bit, guys, in uh, chapter uh, Numbers uh, chapter 21, verse 14, therefore it is said, the book of the wars of Yehovah. Where is that book? That's Come a here. good question. <laughs> I tell you, no one, one knows. Thing, no one knows, but one thing's amazing, and it's like the book of the Chronicles of the, the kings of Israel, and you know, we, we, see, we see these witnesses uh, in Scripture that there are these other sources that were definitely in existence at the time that you know that these these things were written and and so so people you know and i know that we could we could go off the trail here and talk about the many things that have been found and that's why we've got to go to the book of jubilees or the book of enoch or the book of whatever that's been found and whatever but i think one of the things that we we can acknowledge is that these are sources that existed but they didn't make it into the uh, to the, they weren't preserved, at least, or, well, yeah. or they well, didn't may- make it into. Well, maybe they actually were. And let me point something out. Yeah. The word "book" in ancient Hebrew, the word "sefer" (book), uh, refers to any written document. And in fact, mm-hmm. when it talks mm-hmm. about a, a, a divorce, and it says the man will give the woman a, a certificate of of, uh, of of separation, it actually is "sefer kritut," which you could translate as a, mm-hmm. a book of separation. So, "sefer" is any written thing. There are ancient inscriptions. Which are you know ten lines long, and they refer to the inscription refers to you know it's written on stone uh, in ancient Hebrew, and it and it refers to itself as a sefer as a as a book. So sefer could be uh, a very short document, and it's very possible that the book of the wars of Yehovah is simply verses fourteen through or mm-hmm. through fifteen, or, or you know this small passage here. That might be the mm-hmm. extent. Of uh, possibly even through verse twenty, that might be the mm-hmm. entire extent of the book of the wars of Jehovah. That might be it. It's not a very big book uh-huh. in that case, but but we don't know. Maybe there was a bigger book and it just doesn't exist. Who knows? Sure. All right, okay. So it goes on now. There, there is the the defeat of the uh, King Sion. There's the defeat uh, of King Og. And uh, is there anything? Just picking up the pace, Keith. Is there anything you want to highlight in uh, chapter in the ends of chapter twenty two here? Uh, chapter twenty one, rather. No, no, no. I'm fine. Oh, Nahemia. Nice. Verse twenty nine. Can we can we read this? Absolutely. So th- this is a you know a song that they sang um, at some point. Uh, it's actually a proverb in verse twenty seven. It's described. It says, "Therefore, the 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 those who speak the proverbs will say." Mm-hmm. And then they have this proverb, and it's not clear who those proverb speakers are. Um, maybe they're not even Israelites, because in verse twenty nine it says, "Woe unto you, Moab." You have uh, you uh, people of Kamosh are destroyed, and Kamosh is the god of Moab, the god of the Moabites, which leads me to think that this is not a Hebrew, or excuse me, I should say, not an Israelite. Um, at least I hope it's not an Israelite uh, poem or proverb, but that this may have actually been a Moabite uh, uh, or an Edomite, or you know, something from the area, mm-hmm. one a pro- mm-hmm. proverb from from that region, and and that actually brings up a really interesting thing. Which is that they've archaeologists have found ancient writing, ancient inscriptions in several languages, and those include Moabite, Ammonite, and Edomite. Now remember, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites are the cousins of Israel. And guess what? Their language is almost identical to Hebrew. So much so that if you put um, vowel markers in it, I would say that just about any literate person in Israel would be able to read those um, those ancient Hebrew inscriptions. Um, now there are some words that are different and some, you know, some grammatical forms that are different, but basically, I mean, that's the type of difference you even have within any, a given language, you know, even between English, American English and Australian, you've got some differences. Um, Mm -hmm. so these differences are a little bit bigger, but basically Moabite, Ammonite, and Edomite are, are Hebrew, are dialects of Hebrew. They're almost identical to the language of the Bible. 
And um, and so this proverb here is probably not an, uh, um, a Hebrew proverb. It's probably an Edomite or a Moabite or an Ammonite proverb. And that's why it's mentioning Kamosh in verse 29. There we mm-hmm. go. Thank you for that. All right, I'm going to jump right to the end. You ready? Because we've pretty much run out of time. And this okay. is the first, and I'm, you know what? I'm really excited. This is the first verse, chapter 22. It says, The children of Israel moved uh, and, and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now, the reason why I'm excited, oh my goodness, the next talk portion is Balak. Yes. Numbers 22, verse 2 to 25, 9. This has got to be one of my favorite Torah portions, I think, and okay. I'm uh, really looking forward to that one. So I'm just so excited they finally made it to the border of the land. They're in, there the, we plains go. <laughs> of, they're in the plains of Moab, uh, just across Jericho, and, and that excites me because I could actually go outside, walk for two or three minutes to the top of the hill from where I live, and see the plains of Moab. So that excites wow. me. This is something I can actually see. Hallelujah. They reached... The, I mean, imagine. That means they look back and they can see Jerusalem, the heart of the land of Canaan, the heart of Israel. Mm. That's oh, got to be exciting. They've been wandering for 40 years, and 40 they're years. finally there. Woo! We're going to get there in the next Torah portion. Thank you, Keith Johnson and Pamia Gordon. You've been listening to Torah Pills on Truth Tier Radio. We can freely download this and other Torah Pills programs at Truth to you.org that's truth number two let you dog until next time dear listeners be blessed and be set apart by the truth of buzzword shalom